You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Greg Easterbrook, who is a prolific journalist and author who has written a number of books. It's Better Than It Looks, Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear. He also has a couple other books, including this one, Sonic Boom, Globalization at Mach Speed. He's got a couple books on football, including this one right here, The Game's Not Over in Defense of Football, another one called The King of Sports, as opposed to, I guess, The Sport of Kings. He's got a novel called Here and Now, and then you've got a new book that's called The Blue Aid. And I should also mention that you are probably best known for your column in ESPN called The Tuesday Morning Quarterback, has been on hiatus now for the last couple of years. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here. So, you know, we've just exited the Trump era, which I don't know whether it's going to be forgotten like the Millard Fillmore era, or (laughs) it's going to be remembered as a blip. Hopefully it's not an example of what's to come. But when the book came out, it's better than it looks. I think that making sense of this book, you've got to understand a bit about what was going on during the 2016 elections. And and as you point out, it's pretty hard to think of a, a better time in world history than, say, 2016. And yet the election was dominated by discussions of decline, of downfall, poverty, violence, immigration, all of these things which were seen as threats and indicators of the decline of humanity and civilization in America. And so this book is really an account of why that's the incorrect view of things. Now, look, we've had a couple other things happen since then, including the pandemic, including the George Floyd fallout. But I think that the the message is still valid. We still have lots of people who are decrying the end of this or that and the decline of this or that. And yet, I think you might argue that even with the pandemic, just in our recent rearview mirror, it's hard to think of a better time for humanity. So first of all, maybe tell us, why is this such a great time to be alive? I argue, and it's better than it looks, published in 2018. The, the day on 2016 that Donald Trump was elected, saying the condition of the country had never been worse, and that this is a Trump quote, everything is down, 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 bad, bad, bad. That was the sales pitch in 16. At the same time, the UK Brexit vote was being held. The people supporting Brexit and successful making the same argument. Things had never been worse. On that day in 2016, I would submit that things had never been better for the United States, that they had never been better for the United Kingdom by almost any objective barometer. Everyone alive in 2016 was living, but the average person certainly was living better by almost every measure than the average person of any previous generation. And yet people believed that things were awful. Well, now it's 2021. 2020 was a horrible year. I would submit that right now, I think things have never been better for the United States than today, even though we're still struggling with the fallout of COVID. And I think things have never been better for the United Kingdom than today, even though they still have COVID and other kinds of problems. And we can talk in a lot of ways statistically about why that's true. But why do people think the opposite? Clearly, they think the opposite. The the rhetoric we hear in politics, in the media, in daytime talk shows, social media, 
go to a party. Now, if you're allowed to go out on the street and meet people, meet them on the street. What do people talk about? They talk about how horrible everything is. So there's a long view of this and a, and a shorter term view. The long view is in the book, it's better than it looks. I give examples of a series of famous nonfiction books, great literary novels, and important theatrical performances. They were all about how the United States was mired in a permanent and unstoppable cycle of decline and, and how depressing all these things are. And then the punchline is I tell you the titles, and they're all at least 50 years old. Some of them are 100 years old. People have been saying this since before the American century even started. The decline was not only inevitable, but it was in progress and could never be stopped in any way. That's been a common view in American intellectual affairs. So you look more recently, forget the intellectuals, they have no influence. So look more recently as political events and media people who do have influence. Before Donald Trump came on the stage, while Barack Obama, the most symbolically hopeful person who's ever sat in the White House, was sitting in the White House and the economy was recovering and pretty much all the numbers were positive, greenhouse emissions were declining, longevity was increasing, things were pretty good, all the commentary was negative and pressing hard in the negative direction. And in that case, when you look to the more recent era, you see the addition of Facebook and smartphones and other things that didn't exist before that amplified negativity and made it easier to make things up. It's always impossible to make things up. Smartphones and social media made it easy to make things up. That's a recent development, but it fits in this larger trend. The 17th century, when America wasn't even a country yet, and important commentators were saying, oh, oh, everything is in decline. Oh, oh, what was me? It's a product, basically, in my view, that has sold very well in our history. And the market encourages things that sell. So we reward it. We get more of it. We get pessimism and doomsday. And until we sort of come to the understanding that the late Swedish analyst Hans Rosling called factfulness to base your views on what's true, not on what you wish were true or what you think is true or what some guy you just met whose name you didn't catch told you it was true. Until we base our emotions on what's true, we'll continue to think that everything's going downhill, even as not every single person, but most people in the United States and in the larger world, and especially in Asia, which we're not that conscious of, most people live better than their parents did. And I think their children will live better than they do. Well, it's really hard to take a long-term view and figure out whether or not the things that we've seen in the last 10 years or 20 years are, are trends or blips. And perhaps we have to warn ourselves against succumbing to the view that, you know, things are getting worse. But certainly there's been a lot of attention paid to, say, the rise of social media. And I know plenty of people who would say that we live in a post-truth era and, you know, things are getting worse, at least in this regard. But I think you, you, you highlight that there's really some aspect of this which is baked into human nature. I mean, you go, you go as far back as Plato and Plato was bemoaning the, the loss of the good old days, right? How much of this is just human nature or at least human nature of old people, right? Because it's kind of the old people that, that dominate the conversation, right? Our politicians are old people and, and the people who vote are old people. Is, is this like a, just an old people thing that's been around for as long as humans have been around? Well, it's certainly been around for as long as we have written records and Plato's a great example, Greg, Plato was 2,600 years ago, and Plato wrote that the world was sweetly ordered in his youth, but now was going to hell in a handbasket 
I can't remember the Greek word for handbasket, but that, that was his view a long time ago. And of course, by every objective measure, everyone in the world lives better than Plato did. And yet he thought things were headed downhill. So some of it is aging. Now, what worries me is this extreme negativity about the environment and the future is now starting to show up a polling data of younger people, millennials and even Gen Zs, because young people tend to be optimistic by nature because they're headed upward in life. If you look at older people, not to mention present company, but let's talk about some other older people out there. And I don't want to sound too much like the psychoanalyst Carl Jung, but the arc of life is you start off in a world that's sweetly ordered, not for everyone, but for most people, protected by your parents with no real responsibilities. Gradually, you acquire responsibilities. As time passes, more obligations are placed on you. You experience terrible sorrows. Your heart gets broken. People betray you. Bad things happen. Psychology shows that we remember bad things much more keenly than we remember good things. And there's a lot of research on that point that we could talk about. So you accumulate the number of bad things that you've experienced. And then at some point, about halfway through, it occurs to you that you've started downhill and you're going to die. And we're all going to die. So this point of view that things are in decline, nobody's getting any younger, that things are declining and the good days, oh, those good old days back then and those good old days, if only it was the good old days. Well, what, what's the unifying factor of every fantasy of the good old days in every society? The person was younger then. So of course it seems idealized and misty back in the good old days. There's a constant of human society. And that fact that bad things are much more memorable than good things. There's a terrific book on that from a couple of years ago called The Power of Bad by the psychologist Roy Baumeister and the writer John Tierney, going into detail on how studies show we remember bad things and forget good things. The older you are, the more bad things you have rattling around in your head. And now we have social media amplifying this. You think about, sure, there's been bad news. There's always been bad news. If it bleeds, it leads. Is, I mean, that was with the invention of the newspaper. So if you look at a newspaper 150 years ago, it was all shocking stuff on the front page. But you could walk away and the newspaper would stay there. It would not get up and follow you. Your smartphone, the last 15 years, your smartphone follows you. It's with you physically everywhere. We look at the damn things constantly and we hold them up to our faces, literally close to our faces. I always thought the name of Facebook wasn't an intentional name that was referring to something else. But it, what it really means is this book is held in your face and it makes it seem scarier and weirder. And it makes it seem like there's no way to get away from it. Now you can get away from it by turning off your phone, but nobody's willing to do that. So we have this new amplifying mechanism and there may be some other amplifying mechanism on the way, but almost all of us were convinced that things are going downhill. I would, again, to repeat, I'm not trying to be facetious when I say this, I think that 2021 right now, the United States is in the best condition that it's ever been in. And a year from now, it will be in an even better condition. And I want to talk a little bit about journalism and, and the media. I mean, Facebook, obviously, there's a lot of amateur journalists out there. But even among professional journalists, as, as you say, the demand is for the, the negative stories. The demand is not for the positive stories. I mean, if you have a headline that says poverty is reduced, and disease is reduced, right? This is not something that people are going to click on or, you know, people are going to buy. And so are journalists pessimistic people or are they just well attuned to what sells and what people click on? Some of it's what sells, some of it's expectations. I'll give you two stories that you certainly have not seen anywhere in the New York Times. The decline of poverty in Asia in the last 25 years arguably is one of the greatest achievements of human history. 
This number comes from Max Rosen at Oxford University, who has the best data site in his title, Our World in Data. Just search for that phrase and you'll find hundreds of beautiful, easy to understand graphs, and it's all in the public domain. You can use it any way you want. But Max Rosen, when he looks at poverty data in China and the rest of the Pacific Rim 25 years ago to today, he calculates that 140,000 people have exited poverty in Asia every day for the last 25 years. And if you've heard one word about that in the New York Times, you have not. All you've heard is how everything is getting so bad and terrible in the developing world. I'll give you another interesting fact. We're all worried about climate change. We should be. Human climate change is real and proven. American greenhouse gas emissions per capita peaked 17 years ago. Our absolute number of greenhouse, total of greenhouse gases peaked nine years ago. They've been in total decline since. Have you seen one word about that in the New York Times? Barack Obama, when he was president, set a very ambitious goal for the year 2030 for decline of American greenhouse emissions. That goal was hit under Donald Trump. Did you see one word about that? Of course not, because it's not a negative story. So not only is the media addicted to negativity, the, the daily media, the, the main television news shows, the New York Times, Washington Post, etc. So is the high-class intellectual media, the, the Atlantic Monthly, which I dearly love. I've written for the Atlantic Monthly for 40 years now. I think it's the best general interest publication ever from anybody. It has become so alarmist. The issue almost shakes in your hand. Everything's about how horrible everything is. And the reason is that's what the customer wants. You give the reader what he wants. The Atlantic, the New York Times, the New Yorker have stabilized their financial situations very nicely by going all negative all the time. That's what people are willing to buy. And I guess it's, you know, it's a free market if that's what people want to buy. I, I'm not going to stop them, but it creates... For all the, the New York Times, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, the beginning of the food chain for journalism and other journalists who are, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but perhaps not quite as thoughtful, they see the New York Times and the Atlantic going into panic mode, so they go into panic mode too. It creates an effect that's, I think, unhealthy, but weirdly, it's great business because readers will pay for it. Is perhaps this due to a breakdown in the professional responsibility of, of journalism? Is it greater market forces? Was there ever a golden age where journalism would restrain itself and pursue greater truth or accuracy over greater sales and clicks? Probably not. You hear people say, oh, back in the golden age of journalism, all you needed to need to just watch CBS Evening News, and that was all you needed to do. Well, go to any library and, and look up video clips from CBS Evening News from the mid-60s. Look up from the period that the New York Times was sitting on the Watergate story because they didn't want to upset the kind of people who would invite the Times' top editors to exclusive dinner parties on the Upper East Side and in Sag Harbor. The media sat on an awful lot of important public information in that golden age of the 60s and 70s, and now nobody sits on anything. I, I guess that's a healthy development. I would say one of the worst things that's happened to the New York Times, the Atlantic, the networks, et cetera, is they're now populated almost entirely by Ivy League graduates. And you would think, whoa, that's great. You know, all these Ivy Leaguers, they're so smart and well-educated. They're trained in the Ivy League to condescend, especially to middle America. The way you impress an Ivy League professor is by coming up with a really clever insult against something or by criticizing some past 
writer or political figure who's viewed as a great mind. If you can nail them with a great put down, that helps you do well. And, and that attitude is now gone. And let's use the New York Times as, a, as our example. They're, they're often a whipping boy, but they should be because they're the most important news publication. If you want to write something for the New York Times about how anything is good or getting better in any way, you're looked down on as a Pollyanna. And I can tell you, because although I write often for the New York Times, I've gone through this cycle so many times. Oh, Greg, you don't want to be a Pollyanna. If I send in a, an op-ed piece saying that X, name an issue, issue X, is actually so bad that it's about to destroy human life, oh, they get all excited. And if you send in an issue saying, oh, look at these figures for agricultural production, there's plenty of food and there will be for years, it's hard to get them excited about that. And I think it's a reflection of how Ivy League education is structured these days. So easy for me to say, I didn't go to the Ivy League. Right. You call this, I think, declinism in academia. And it's not just ordinary people, but intellectuals. This is a bit surprising because we would think that as people become more educated, and people are by far becoming more educated, that kind of anecdote would be replaced with data, right? We, we think of anecdote as how uneducated people think, and, and we think of data as how educated people think, right? Question your first impulse, question your subjective viewpoint, shore it up with data and evidence and look at the big picture. And you don't say, my grandmother's 100 and she smoked, so therefore smoking must be good for you, right? But I think you're, you're arguing that at least with respect to this valence, whether or not one should be optimistic or pessimistic, concerned or cheerful, that data is kind of suppressed, at least in consciousness of the educated people. I would say it's looked down on more than suppressed. It's not that the New York Times doesn't want to see the statistics from Chinese rising material standards. It just doesn't care about them. It only cares about statistics that are negative. That's what it wants to emphasize. And I would say, since I'm blaming the Ivy League here, which I feel very confident I'm correct in doing, or that general mentality, if you think back a couple of generations, the New York Times, again, is our indicator, or Princeton University, or Duke, or U of Chicago, any top school, there the, most of the faculty members would be very proud to be Americans. And they would think that the American experiment was one of the greatest things that ever happened to the world, that American exceptionalism was real. And yes, of course, we have our problems. I'm looking back to generations when, before the Civil Rights Act had been passed, there are all kinds of serious problems, but America is the greatest thing that ever happened to our world. And now most of those serious problems have been corrected in de jure terms or terms of law. Pretty much everything you can do to correct injustice in American society has been done. And at the same time, we've all been convinced that America is a nightmare country. It's the worst place in the world. The worst thing that ever happened to the world was the development of America. And this is, I'm characterizing the views in Ivy League, other top schools, New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, etc. You not only don't find people who say, I'm really proud to be a patriot, which I would say, I would guess that most editors of the New York Times would not say that, but who believe deep in their hearts that there's something disgusting and terrible about America's position in the world, which is a real, real different thing to believe than to think there's a lot of reforms we still need to do, which certainly I, I would agree with. The book, It's Better Than It Looks, the whole second half of the book is about the reforms that we still need to do for climate change and equality and many other subjects. But there's a big difference between saying we have to get better and saying we're bad. And I think the intellectual worldview now is that we're bad. And of course, I think it's wrong or I wouldn't be setting it up this way, but it's very influential that intellectuals think this now. Well, it's interesting that you 
pin part of the blame on Ivy Leagues because it's, it would be really hard to find someone in the Ivy Leagues who voted for Trump. And so th- your point is that this is not a left-right thing, that it's just that the sources of anxiety are different depending on one's political viewpoint, right? So maybe Trump is concerned about immigration. And if you're on the kind of liberal left-wing side, like Bernie Sanders, you'd pin the blame on technology. But both would agree that, that everything's going downhill fast. Well, I, I don't mean just to blame the Ivy League. I'll spread it around. I'm happy to blame Cal Berkeley. Of the Cal Berkeley faculties, again, today's we're recording this on Memorial Day. How many faculty members at Cal Berkeley get a tear in their eye when they see the flag raised on Memorial Day? Perhaps not that many. <laughs> yeah, it's just not that many. And a couple of generations ago, it would have been many. Mm-hmm. So you pointed to Frederick Bastiat, who is a well-known economist, maybe not well-known to very many people, but within the economics profession as the inventor or discoverer or formulator of the opportunity cost. And so you say we should think as much about the things that haven't happened as the thing that have happened. And and I think some of the things that haven't happened are the things that were prophesied, right? So one way to think about whether or not we're doing a good job prophesying is to go back and look at other prophets and, and see how successful they were. And, you know, I interviewed Paul Ehrlich a couple weeks ago, and he's famous for talking about how we're going to run out of resources. Why do we not learn from the mistakes of our prior prophecies? Population doomsday forecast, which Paul did his share of, food exhaustion, mass starvation forecast. Paul also did his share of, but other, many other analysts have also done that. Claims that petroleum was about to be exhausted. Remember a generation ago, we were going to be desperate for petroleum right now, and now we're, now we're desperate for places to put it all because we've got so much. Many doomsday forecasts of the past, I would argue, and I argue, and it's better than it looks, that none of the doomsday forecasts has ever come true. It's not that only some of them have come true. None of them have come true. And we ought to say to ourselves, we have this whole category of forecasts of terrible world-ending things that are about to happen. These forecasts never turn out to be right. Maybe that's telling us something. No, it's also true that occasionally, and Rachel Carson is the best example of this, occasionally dire warnings lead to reforms that prevent the thing that was being warned against. So Rachel Carson was 1962. Her dire warnings about overuse of pesticides led to reduction in use of pesticides. Then the things that she was worried about didn't happen as a result of that. But boy, some of those real big deal predictions of petroleum depletion, mass starvation, human population growth, destroying the carrying capacity of the earth. They weren't prevented by specific reforms. They were prevented by the arc of technology and market forces and human ingenuity. There wasn't a big government agency that stopped those things. It was human ingenuity and market forces that stopped those things. I want to push back on that because couldn't some people argue that were it not for this constant alarmism, were it not for this constant doomsdaying, that a lot of the positive results that you point to in the book may not have happened. I mean, one example is, say, cap and trade, right? So, you know, that is a government policy. We were worried about acid rain and and we got cap and trade. And some people would argue that maybe we weren't alarmist enough about the prospect of a global pandemic. And maybe that's why we had the coronavirus crisis, because people became complacent. They weren't out there fear-mongering enough about these sorts of viruses. Greg always thought that the worry about complacency was the strongest counterargument to my main line of thought. And here's how I address it. 
Rachel Carson, clearly, if her warnings had been mild, well, you know, these things might happen. It's something we should keep an eye on. Probably wouldn't have resulted in the pretty dramatic legislation that stopped the very thing that she was worried about. Or if, if Ralph Nader wasn't talking about the death trap on wheels and all that, we wouldn't have the safety improvements we have. I would give a yes and no to that one because a number of safety improvements in cars in the last 20 years have not been government mandated. Seatbelt pretensioners, the re redesign of the body frame so it's energy absorbing, those things were initiatives from the free marketplace and from technology. But yeah, Ralph Nader's awareness of safety issues certainly helped that along. It definitely was a positive. The way I look at this objection, the objection that if we're optimistic will become complacent, is that the record of past reforms is the best argument for the next phase of reforms. I'm a big believer that we need more work against climate change. Climate change is real, but it can be controlled. It's actually surprisingly similar to the acid rain problem that you just mentioned, except that it's global rather than regional. And I think greenhouse gases can be controlled without any harm to the economy, by the way, because acid rain was controlled without any harm to the economy. But the reason to go there is that you're optimistic that your reforms will work. I think the endless doomsday stuff is kind of wearying, a sort of fatigue sets in. And when you have many political candidates in the in last year's election cycle, including the guy who was elected president, Joe Biden, saying that the world will end in the year 2030 because of global warming. Whoa, if the world's really going to end, <laughs> I want to spend my final years drinking champagne. But the pitch that I think is much more fair is to say, yeah, there's some work to do, but it's all going to work. Look how successful cap and trade was with acid rain. Let's impose cap and trade on carbon and we'll get the same effect. And then 20 years from now, people will say, what was all the fuss about? I think that's the answer to the complacency argument. You had a couple news headlines in the book. One was oil glut grows or gas glut grows. And these were written without irony. And, and, I, and I just recall seeing in the newspaper recently the problem of surplus vaccines grows. <laughs> I was thinking, wait, how did we go from vaccine shortage to vaccine glut without any intermediate period? You know, things are just right. Right. Well, you don't have to go that far back to read petroleum exhaustion forecast. The most famous one is a study that some of your audience may know, Limits to Growth from 1972, that said that all the fossil fuel in the world would be exhausted by the year 2000. And in the year 2000, there was more fossil fuel available in the world than when the authors of the Limits to Growth study wrote that in 1972. And the amount of fossil fuel available in the world is now greater than it was in the year 2000. And I suspect it's going to be greater again 10 years from now. It would be nice if we learned from experiences like this, wouldn't it? Well, you say at one point that people believe what they want to believe. And I guess the question is, why would people want to believe these things? I think the coronavirus crisis for the last year is, I'm sure you've been sitting back in, in your house in, in Bethesda and, and watching this whole thing unfold with some degree of validation because there's really been nothing in the media other than fear, promotion, anxiety, any news that downplayed the dangers or offered hope that remediation was going to be effective were kind of buried in, in the back of the, you know, instead it's like vaccines might not work. We've got new variants, but the spin has typically been very negative. I mean, even like the CDC recently where they, they said 
less than 10% chance of being infected when really it's like less than one-tenth of 1%. So why would people want to believe the worst possible case? Is this just satisfaction of their anxiety? It is a conundrum. People do seem to like to believe the worst, and I propose in the book that there are four basic ways of knowing, not to sound like a philosophy seminar, but there's fact. The sun is 93 million miles from the earth. There's just nothing to discuss there. There's opinion. Opinions are neither right nor wrong. There are articles of faith. We can neither prove nor disprove that God exists. And then there's what you want to believe. It's so much more powerful than all those three other categories combined. So why do we want to believe things that are bad? I propose in a previous book from 20 years ago called The Progress Paradox, which is about the subjective understanding of the world. The current one is better than it looks. is about objective understanding. But I propose in Progress Paradox about subjective understanding in the world that because Americans are relatively favored by history, I think American exceptionalism is a real thing. We're favored by geography, among many other things. But because we live in a relatively favored society, it makes it hard to feel bad for yourself. There's this human need to feel sorry for yourself. And in our case, we've fixated on looking for things to get upset about, which is now physical. You know the expression doom scrolling, where you go like this on your phone until you find something that's really bad, and then you read that. I proposed in The Progress Paradox that this is a, a psychological phenomenon that I called abundance denial, that we want to live in abundance, but we don't want to admit that we're living in abundance. We want to feel bad about it at some level. and this is. I would confess to you, I cannot prove this to a level that would, that would impress the psychology department at Cal Berkeley, but I think it's a big factor in human affairs. Well, could it be that we have sources of anxiety that we we're not aware of, and then we look for explanations and those explanations may not be the real sources. You talk about collapse anxiety and you attribute it to the ever increasing pace of change, right? It would be hard to argue that things are changing as rapidly as they may have changed, say, in the, I mean, who knows, in the 8th century, probably the Huns would show up on your doorstep. It could be a pretty radical change, right? But, you know, when you get a job and the job is obsolete a year later, or, you know, you get an education and the education is is obsolete a year later, this means that you kind of have to always be on your toes. And when we see jobs constantly being eliminated and people have to more rapidly embrace changes from day to day, this may create anxiety and and then people have to pin the blame somewhere. I think it's definitely true that the pace of change is increasing. It's been increasing for at least 200 years. You look far in the past, the 8th century that you mentioned, change wasn't all that great, but the, the generation to generation change is increasing. And, and just at the corporate level, who you work for, you're in Northern California, you're pretty close to where the Googleplex is. And Mountain View, and Google seems like this incredibly muscular, huge, valuable corporation. Where is its headquarters? Where Silicon Graphics used to be. 25 years ago, Silicon Graphics was in Mountain View, and they were this incredibly huge, muscular, profitable corporation that could never fail, and they failed. And it won't surprise me at all if Google fails 10 years from now. And then all this, all the Googlers are out looking for some other job. And that leads to a lot of anxiety. And I, I go again, this was in the book from 20 years ago about subjective feelings that as a society, we suffer from collapse anxiety. And this was palpable before the physical collapse of the World Trade Centers made it visual that we worry, we think, yes, things are actually going pretty well right now, but it's all going to collapse. We'll run out of something. And not through war, that could sadly happen, but it's going to collapse in some physical way. The economy will just stop working. 
there'll be nothing in stores. People will be fighting each other for food. You'll pick up the phone and no one will answer. And I admit, I can't prove that that's not going to happen. Maybe society will collapse. I think it's really unlikely, but it could happen. And I think it's in the back of a lot of our heads that the way we live today engages a risk of collapse. And we worry about it, and it's a worry. Well, one of the things I enjoyed about your column, to which I was a devoted reader, the Tuesday Morning Quarterback, you have a great way of coining new phrases. And one that I read in in this book was blubbery information-like substance, which is what is <laughs> exuded by your, your phone as you scroll through your, your news feed. I enjoyed that because people don't seem to have a way of necessarily distinguishing between high-quality information and, and low-quality information. Well, it's a big problem. The internet, of course, is, makes it really convenient to get Tex-Mex food. It has some advantages, but it's also a great convenient, low-cost way to get wrong information. And wrong information is now all around us. Now, again, you shouldn't idealize the past. A couple generations ago, say, when there was no internet and you needed information, you went to a government archive or to the New York Times or a few other sources. They may not have been right either, but at least the information that you were partaking of had gone through some vague professional process where an editor said, who's your source on this? And objected to wording and expected you to show a document to support a claim of fact. At least there was a formula for trying to figure out if stuff was true. On the internet, there's not only no formula for trying to figure out if things are true, you're rewarded for making things up. And textbook economics is if you get rewarded for it, you do it more. So you make more things up and that's what's going on on the internet. Now, I think Trump and Sanders both agreed that American industrial might was on the decline and manufacturing was basically dead and, and destroyed by imports. And you're from the city of Buffalo, which is in the declining Rust Belt. There's a consensus that the Rust Belt has been devastated by imports from Mexico. And, and yet, as you highlight in the book, there are wide swaths of territory in the so-called dead Rust Belt that are doing doing quite well. And to the extent that they were impacted negatively, it was not from imports as much as it was from, from automation, right? Actually, my next book, Coming Up to Blue Age, has a lot on the effect that global trade had on American industrial production. And I'll tell you, the fast version is I'll give you two basic facts that are relevant. In the 2020 campaign, that's the most recent campaign, less than a year ago, Donald Trump said that Quote, American manufacturing has been completely destroyed. And the New York Times fact checker column called this claim, quote, mostly true. So you go and look at Federal Reserve data. I'm sure when, when you do economic writing, you look at Fred, the great data service of the Federal Reserve Bank, Bank of St. Louis. So when I saw that, I went and looked at Fred. And on the day that Donald Trump of the New York Times agreed that American manufacturing had been completely destroyed, U.S. manufacturing output was 97% of the peak. So if 97% of something is still there, it has not been completely destroyed. But that seems to be what we want to believe. We want to believe the Chinese have taken away our jobs. One-fifth of Chinese exports come to the United States. Most of them do not go here. Now, they certainly affect the equilibrium of the trade market. There's no way to get around that. But many studies, including MIT studies, have consistently shown that A, job losses in manufacturing are exaggerated. About 80% of manufacturing jobs 
job levels are still the same as they were 20, 30 years ago. And almost all of that comes for either from automation or from changes in consumer preferences, what people want to buy. The third factor that we always forget is improved reliability of modern products. When you and I were young, you had to buy a new car every second year, absolute most every third year because cars would fall apart. The median car on the road in the United States today is 12 years old. I drive a nine-year-old car and I'm real happy with it. It's in excellent condition. Same with home appliances and similar things. As manufactured products become more reliable and last longer, you don't need to buy as many of them. And you can actually, if you look at data from MIT and other places, there are more job losses associated with that than there are with China. So what are we going to do? Are we going to ban higher reliability? Are we going to require General Motors to go back to planned obsolescence and building cars that rust with the first snowstorm? I mean, it's just a transition. We emphasize Donald Trump was a master of this. Keen emphasis on whatever is bad or wrong or painful. No mention at all of all the stuff that's good. During the period that manufacturing jobs have declined, less than people think, but definitely they've declined. Material well-being for almost all Americans has gone up. Middle-class living standards has gone up. Per capita income has gone up. We've generated millions more white-collar jobs. And boy, if you talk to your great-grandmother and describe a factory job versus a white-collar job, she would say, well, I want that white-collar job. I want to work in a safe, clean office. That sounds great. And we're doing very well at generating white-collar jobs. Yeah, I, I don't quite understand the nostalgia for what Engels called the satanic mills, right? Like, I mean, it's the same with agriculture, right? I mean, being a farmer was a terrible job, being a peasant. So why do both political parties support the idea of, you know, putting people back in the coal mines and, and back in the kind of steel front. I mean, this just seems horrible. Like, let's all go get black lung and die at age 50. This sounds like a great idea. The fewer coal mines, the better. I'd be very happy outlawing coal mines altogether. They are terrible places. You hear this nostalgia, again, to pile on the New York Times. An editorial board meeting of the New York Times, if someone started rhapsodizing about, oh, back in the old days in Pittsburgh when there was sulfur haze on your car in the morning, which is an actual real thing in Pittsburgh 30 or 40 years ago, when people were working in those hot mills and average deaths in Pittsburgh steel mills were 20 a day, oh boy, those were the good old days. Everybody would nod their heads as if there was some kind of wise comet and the Chinese had taken away this wonderful ability to work in, in a hot, dangerous steel mill and and to die young when something fell on you. Oh, when the Chinese took that away from It's abundance denial. People have torn emotions about all the privileges they enjoy. And rather than saying, yeah, I'm living a great life and I want to do things that will help this great life be extended to other people all around the world. No, they go in for abundance denial and they romanticize coal mines. Farm labor is backbreaking. If you've ever done farm labor, even for one harvest season, you know how hard it is. That stuff should be done by machines, not people. Well, another example of declinism is around beliefs in increasing structural racism. I think you mentioned at some point in the book that the idea of politicians driving wedges between people based on identity, that this might be a blip. But if, if there is this constant of this thermodynamics rule where, you know, people have to be anxious at some constant level, then why wouldn't we just expect this to continue indefinitely? Well, I think that there is a good line. Anxiety does seem to be conserved in some way that's almost like a law of thermodynamics. I hope that at some point society will get past that. I, it would be unrealistic to say that you can see it 
happening right now. But as regards race, it's the thing that we're dealing with right now, and it's about time. I mentioned before, not to repeat, but the de jure things that you could do with law to adjust for racial discrimination, those things have been done. And yet you look around and you still observe that there's racism in society. So what's the next stage? I think I would say in general, the simplistic way to look at it, taken by a lot of people, is that there was a moral horror involving race that was slavery. We fought a, a bloody war over it. The moral horror ended. Then there was a political horror involving race, and that was Jim Crow and legal segregation. And through Brown versus Board and the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act and other pieces of legislation that the political horror ended and, and it's now over and it, it is now over. But we've still got the economic results. That's never really been addressed. And it's the hardest of the three because they're so bound up in the way society is structured. Family net worth and many other things dramatically different between blacks and whites. Look at the pay gap between blacks and whites. It's shrinking. Education levels are becoming similar between both groups. But family net worth, gigantic difference because family net worth goes back many generations and whites completely dominated that. So it's going to be at least another couple of generations till the economic horrors of slavery can be addressed. And I, I think confronting these issues head on is a healthy way to do it. But you talk also about how now everybody is clamoring for membership in the victimhood club, including people who are certainly on the, on the winning side of much of what's happened. Donald Trump won in 16, in part because he showed how victimhood could be weaponized politically. If you could convince white people, white people the largest group, 74% of Americans are white. So are the things being equal? If you get white people to believe something, you're going to win an election, regardless of what the something is that you get them to believe. So Trump got white people to believe that they were victims. And that was a winning formula. And it almost worked again in 2020. George Will got into a lot of trouble about 10 years ago when he said that modern college students sought the, quote, coveted status of victimhood. But that's what modern college students seek. And you find this in many areas of society. There are lots of people who are bona fide victims and they deserve society's empathy and help. And then there's a lot of people who are passing themselves off as victims. And yeah, there's actually millions of people who are like that. And it's weird that this has become a trend, but it clearly is a trend. Well, I want to switch gears and talk a bit about football because this is also an area where you've got people who are old school football players who are bemoaning the decline of the sport and how it used to be better back in the good old days when people could get concussions on a regular basis. But you, you really highlight the importance of football in, in American culture and sport more generally. And you mentioned that the, the journalism profession, which is dominated from the city of New York, they think that football is something for the rubes in, in the sticks. And I think if you, if you watch some of the football dramas, like on television, Friday Night Lights or, you know, Last Chance You, then that might confirm your, your suspicion that this is really an obsession of the rural part of America, the less educated part of America. Why do you think that people are so skeptical about this thing, which is such a central part of many people's lives? In the case of sort of New York elites looking down their noses at football, it's largely because the private schools of New York City don't have football teams because they don't have fields that you can play football on. Once you get out of New York City, all the Ivy League schools play football, all, all the NESCAC schools, Bowdoin, Middlebury, et cetera, play football, Duke, Northwestern, Stanford, they all play football and it all fits in just fine with their culture. But nobody who, who sends their kids to a private school in Manhattan has any personal football experience. 
And so that's one of the reasons that they think that it's this evil thing that Rubes and Iowa do. I think football is essential to the American experience. It's everything that America is. It's the biggest sport. It's the most expensive sport. It's way overpriced. It's the loudest and craziest sport. It's the most superficial sport. It's also the most complicated sport. Football is much more complicated on a tactical basis than any other sport, unless you count chess as a sport. But if you don't count chess, football is by far the most complex sport tactically. And I find the tactics in football to be fascinating. And the way they've evolved in the last 10 years, I think modern games are a lot of fun. I'm, I'm very happy to be at a modern football game watching modern advanced tactics in use. But I think a lot of people don't follow it in the way that some people follow baseball and they feel comfortable because baseball just never changes. Nothing is ever different. Football is completely different every third season. And I sort of like that. It's like the United States. And I think and have written, including in the book, that only the United States could play American-style football. We're big enough, rich enough, crazy enough, loud enough, and superficial enough to go for this sport. It's quintessentially American, and that's one of the reasons I like it so much. I think there's something about the sport that is very military, right? And you use a bunch of analogies in, in the book about that. And certainly the, the centrality of football in American life has, in some ways, come to substitute for the centrality of the, the military experience, which, which most people nowadays don't have any connection to. I'm certainly the first member of my male lineage since they came to America that was not part of the military. And most people don't have members of their families in, in the military. But football is kind of like, I think you call it kind of war light. And for someone who teaches strategy, right, strategy is really war, sports, and business. And we can't really talk about war much in class. And I find myself making a lot of sports analogies, which I think is somewhat limiting because a lot of people don't don't understand them. It's not a universal interest, but it certainly has come to represent a major place in American psyche. Oh, it's a big place, and I, and I do call it War Light, L-I-T-E. That's what it is because it's organized like war. The coaches are like generals, the players, etc. You can fill in the rest of that metaphor for yourself, and it's a way to experience some of those emotions without anybody getting killed, which is a nice, pretty nice feature of it. And football does have, especially for teenagers playing it in high school, it has a lot of benefits. They, they teach you self-discipline, teamwork, et cetera. Those are useful skills for getting through life. But it is structured a lot like war, and I'd rather have people fighting over whether the Giants can beat the Broncos than whether the Russians can beat the Chinese. Maybe some of the elite skepticism towards a uh, sport like football rooted in, in the fact that it is so masculine, that it really is, I think you call it kind of the last preserve of masculinity and masculine virtues. It is very masculine. And I think one reason this theory does not originate with me, but I think this theory is right, that football has risen a great deal in popularity in the last 25 years. And that's coincided with women becoming much stronger politically and economically. So a lot of men retreat into football because football is the one place in American life where women cannot possibly take over. Women are never going to play in the NFL. It's just not going to happen. So that's the one thing you can fall back on that you're, you're assured that women won't get a place because there is no place for women in football. By the same token, I think masculinity has taken a beating in American intellectual life in the last 20 years. Half of the world is male. Properly controlled masculinity is a good thing for our world. All young people, especially young boys, but young girls too, need a masculine influence in their lives. 
it's common to hear the term toxic masculinity now used to describe anything that's even remotely male. And if you really think you're going to live in a society where there's no male impulses, yeah, this is not a realistic view. So the challenge with masculinity is, and football sometimes helps, sometimes hurts, but to teach boys and young men how to accomplish positive things with their masculine impulses, not to let their masculine impulses run wild. But to dislike masculinity itself, which is the trend right now, is, I think, harmful. Well, at one point in It's Better Than It Looks, you talk about there was a commander, I think, of the U.S. Navy who said that the goal of the U.S. was to, at one point, be something that people aspired to, but also something that was powerful and, and intimidating. And it made me think of football, right? Because football is this, this controlled violence. What's admirable about it is the fact that someone can be so violent and then, you know, immediately switch it off. And, and I think people on the outside, they would prefer to think that if you're violent on the field, you must be violent off the field. And so there's this kind of mistaken belief that football players are criminals. And I think they also think that they live short lives and that they're unhealthy. And, and I think you, you highlight that not only are they healthier than most people with similar demographics, but they're also less violent. And that, you know, there's something beautiful about someone who just knocks the crap out of someone and then leans over and helps them up, right? And is that a metaphor for the larger idea of America and, and the global? Well, I think, Greg, it's one of the indicators of our inability or our failure to be factful in our understanding of the world. Because a lot of things you just mentioned, most people would say, oh, yes, football players, they commit more crimes than average people and they live short lives. And if you look at actually data, football players are less likely to commit crimes than men of the same age. As a group, they live longer. They have better indicators of health. They have better heart health, fewer strokes, etc. You can find examples of football players who have died young of brain trauma. You can find examples of football players who have committed terrible crime. But then you're trying to argue by anecdote. It's much more reliable to argue by data. And if you look at the data, football players are better off than, and not just financially, they're better off as a group, better citizens than men of the same age. And in part because most of them, I wish I could say every single one of them, that's not true, but most of them have learned to express their masculinity within a structure of rules. And that's what we ask all men in society to do. And football does not get credit for teaching that to the vast majority of its players and coaches who do learn that lesson. One of the things that I've talked to a lot of guests about is doing cost-benefit analysis and thinking about the different trade-offs. And I think the recent discussions about why would you ever want your kid to play football when they could potentially experience brain trauma, as someone who, who just, I had a concussion playing sports just this past year, and some people said, well, why, why would you ever put yourself through that kind of risk is to completely dismiss the, the upside and the benefits, not only to the individuals who are playing, but also to the people in their community that enjoy this. During coronavirus, I think there were a lot of people that were critical of the sports leagues for, for carrying on in the face of the pandemic. And I think that the benefit that people focused on was primarily the financial benefit to the leagues, but the benefit to the, the broader society is one that, that doesn't seem to factor in. In general, one of the reasons we've become so negative is that we focus intensely on the downside of things and just entirely skip over the benefits. Donald Trump, his political appeals, he was a master of that. He never talked about rising material standards in the United States, rising per capita income until 2020. We had rising longevity, 
longevity is expected to begin rising again this year. All those things are just taken for granted, and you focus on the things that you don't like in order to make people feel frightened and anxious. And if you go back and look at the social commentator Hannah Arendt, who did her writing in the early 1950s, she warned repeatedly that improvements in mass media would make it easier and more efficient and cheaper to keep people anxious and frightened all the time. And of course, she didn't know that the smartphone was coming, but she did know that electronic improvements were coming, and she was prescient. So we've had 70 years of improving ability to frighten people. And most individuals, you, me, most of our friends, don't benefit in any way from society being kept in a state of fear. But boy, the politicians sure benefit, and the rich people sure benefit. Jeff Bezos has practically doubled his wealth in the COVID year. The New York Times and the Atlantic Monthly and the New Yorker sure benefit from keeping people frightened. People at the top, and this was actually Hannah Arendt's main point, the people at the top of the system benefit from spreading anxiety and fear. Everybody else suffers, and not just in the material sense, but in the sense that your one experience of life is made a sad experience instead of a happy experience. We're going to have to take the bull by the horns ourselves on this one because elites, the people at the top, are never going to let go of trying to scare us. It works so well for them. We have to take this one over on our own. Well, I couldn't let you go before asking you to tell us a bit about your new book because it seems like a, a bit of a departure from the themes that you have been working on your whole life. Could you tell us a bit about this new book? Well, actually, I have two books that are, are finished, Greg. I'll just skip vaguely to the fall of 22 when it's my next literary novel, it's number four. And not to exaggerate, it's a book that I've been working on for 30 years. And I will tell you, it's either going to be a huge success or a gigantic fiasco. And we'll find out in 22, The Blue Age. It's basically a book-length version of a single paragraph. And it's better than it looks. I pointed out, you just mentioned the Navy, that there had been no battle at sea, no major battle at sea in my lifetime, which is completely unlike the previous thousands of years of history, all the way back to the Phoenicians, constant fighting at sea. Suddenly there's no fighting at sea. And during that same period, global trade has increased. Almost everyone is better off, including almost everyone in the Ohio Valley of the United States and in the British Midlands. We're almost all better off from global trade. And certainly poverty in Asia is down spectacularly because of global trade. Finally, what are we going to do to keep it that way, to keep this Blue Age from ending. What do we have to do from a regulatory and governance standpoint? That's what that book is about. Is it primarily about the U.S. naval strength and the kind of hegemony of the of the U.S.? Well, so you just used a word that political scientists consider a bad word. You think that it always ends badly. I think the hegemony of the United States Navy has been great for the world. So the first third of the book says that. The second third is the argument, the laissez-faire argument that free trade benefits almost everyone. And the third third of the book is about how to improve environmental protection of the seas and, and how to regulate the seas so that labor isn't abused and fighting doesn't resume and things like that. So it's only about a third about the Navy. Well, thank you, Greg. You're one of my favorite optimists. It's a very short list, but you're definitely on that list. And I hope that you uh, get back to um, writing your column on Tuesday Morning Quarterback because I enjoyed how you covered football and also how you managed to sneak in all sorts of non-football-related writing into the football column. So hopefully we'll see that come back at some point. Well, I'm considering it. Okay. Thank you. Great talking to you and hope to talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.